Hey, everybody, it's Allie, and welcome to our YNR chat for Sunday, May 5th, 2013. Early this week, Lauren wakes up in another hotel room with Carmine up in her face. I don't know how she can even stand him. I can't stand him. And it's uh, absurd to me that she can't see right through his game. I I hate him. Like, I hate Carmine so much. Does anybody else feel that way? I, I mean, I'm, the, the actor, it's not about the actor. The actor's completely fine. It's the character. He drives me up the wall. Every time he's on the screen, I want to just rip his skin off. <laughs> he's such a slimy sleaze. And he's bringing Lauren breakfast in bed under a silver platter, huge chocolate-covered strawberries for breakfast. And it's obvious that he's trying so hard to romance her. He's going over the top. How can she not find it suspicious? I mean, if it was just about the sex, that would be one thing. But the cold light of day should shine hard down on that relationship. Why is it not? She's off on this vacation with Carmine. Michael is back in Genoa City. He's sitting in Paul's office, and he gets a call from Fenn's school. The headmaster at the school tells Michael that Fenn hasn't been coming, that he's been skipping class. And so Michael talks to Paul a little bit about it, about everything that's going on in the family, and reveals that he is afraid that Fen is going to his dark place in order to deal with these problems in the family. And that concerns Michael, rightfully so, because Michael understands what the dark place is. Michael has firsthand experience with the dark place, letting it take him over. And he knows that at the end of that road is, uh, is nothing good, only trouble. So Michael goes home to where he will, where it used to be his home. He's moved out, but he goes back to the apartment looking for Fen. And apparently, Fen's dark place includes playing really, really loud music uh, with cold fried chicken buckets sitting on the counter with paper plates and napkins strewn all about. And he's just day sleeping. <laughs> his dark place is day sleeping and cold chicken and loud music. <laughs> Oh, teenagers. But Michael wakes him up and tells him, you should be at school right now. What's going on with you? He Michael's trying to have a conversation with his son. And then is blaming himself for everything that is, you know, gone on in Michael and Lauren's marriage. Uh, Fenn thinks it's all his fault. And it is. <laughs> I know, that's not entirely true, but that's how I feel. I feel like if Fenn's the person that set this whole chain of events into motion, and if it weren't for Fenn messing around and bullying Jamie, then Michael and Lauren would still be together today. Uh, but I can understand why Fenn feels the way he does, because now Michael's moved out, and Lauren's not around. It can't help but beg the question, where is your mother? 
right now. You're skipping school and staying home all day. Where's Lauren? So Michael calls Lauren and she's in this hotel room with Carmine, but <laughs> Carmine's not in the room when Michael calls. So actually, um, Michael called using Fenn's phone or Lauren probably never would have picked up at all. But Lauren picks up the phone and Mike, uh, j- just as soon as she does, she's talking to Michael and Carmine walks in the room offering her another glass of breakfast champagne, really laying it on as thick as possible. And Michael hears the voice in the background. He knows that she's with someone. And Lauren makes up an excuse really quickly saying, I don't even remember what she said. She's at a conference. Or no, she said she was at a cafe. That was the waiter. And then she hangs up so abruptly that it was hella suspicious. There was no way that that was fooling Michael at all. Michael is definitely onto her at this point. But he does manage to tell Lauren that Fen's in trouble. There's something seriously wrong with their son, and Lauren needs to be there to be a mother. So Michael tells her uh, to come home, implores her. You know, this is what you need to do. And Lauren tells Carmine, I really need to go home to be with my son. But Carmine is trying to convince her not to. Carmine knows that her son needs her, but he doesn't care at all. And I think that just goes to show that he doesn't care about Lauren. He doesn't care about her needs, about her child, about her family, what's best for her. He cares about himself and what's best for him. And for some reason, Lauren feels, I guess, like she doesn't want to disappoint Carmine or like she can't say no to Carmine. So she decides to go for one more round with him, have another round, one more round of sex before she's got to go take care of business. And then she gets up and uh, like while he's out getting breakfast, she just leaves him a quick note on the bed and 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 bolts and leaves. And I thought, well, why? Okay, first of all, why was why did she have sex with him one more time? If there was an urgency with your son, you should have just left. Like, and and why did she feel like she couldn't just explain it to Carmine and go? It's almost like her rationality is impeded entirely by Carmine and his sex magic. I don't know. The sex voodoo that he's worked on her makes her forget her better judgment. And the only way she can break away from it is if he leaves the room for a second. So didn't you think that was odd that she, it almost seemed like she ditched him and she did it on purpose, like, so she didn't have to com- have a conversation with him about it. Like, she waited to do it. She was sitting there in the bed watching him leave, and as soon as he was out, she jumped up out of bed, wrote the note, and left the room. So, I just, the dynamic between these two, it's so puzzling. It's very uh, complex, and I, I don't even know what has happened to Lauren at this point. She's, I, I just don't recognize her at this point. Um... Michael is at home, and he's looking around the apartment trying trying to clean things up. Fenn's made a mess. And he goes over to um, the desk, opens up a little trinket box, and he finds inside a deck of cards with a ribbon on it and a note attached that said something like, I remember how it all started. And it was clearly... A love note or a love gift from Carmine that she shouldn't have, she should have kept in her car or in her office. She should not have kept it at home. So Michael finds it and it's 
very obviously suspicious. And so as soon as he finds that deck of cards, I'm like, yes, Lauren's on her way home. Michael's found the evidence. This is going to culminate. Finally, she's going to get caught because I'm just waiting for her to get caught. I really do like this storyline. It ticks me off uh, at both Carmine and Lauren. But at the same time, I like Lauren being in the forefront and I'm every week every episode I'm like oh is this gonna be the episode where Lauren gets caught is this the scene is this the scene so it is effective (laughs) because I was expecting her to get caught Michael um I mean he confronts her about it says you know what is this it's time you told me the truth and it almost seemed like she was going to confess. We've had a couple of those where she almost confesses, but this time she really seemed on the verge of it, just ready to be done with the lying. When the phone rings, Paul has found Finn and he's in trouble. They have to rush down to the police station because Finn, I guess, went to the underground, went to Nick's club and got into a fight with the bouncer. Like, the bouncer wouldn't let him in, and so Fen tried to punch the guy? Who? What? 17, 18-year-old kid wins in a fight with a club bouncer? I can't imagine what is going through Fen's mind. He's just lashing out, but his mouth is way bigger than his punch because he ends up with this black eye, and he's looking very emo, just sitting in the chair in Paul's office, black eye, hair down over his face. He just looks like he should be wearing one of those spiky dog collars and all black clothes. (laughs) Maybe some eye makeup, too. Just some lipstick just to throw it in there. Oh, this poor kid. Luckily, Paul was able to get this expunged from the record. I mean, it's not so bad being the DA's or the former DA's son when it gets you off the hook from doing something bad. But, I mean, that's just the beginning. Finn has so many problems. The kid is clearly troubled, and this is just the beginning of that. Mark my words. So... Finn gets off the hook, but back at home, Michael and Lauren have a moment alone together, not just to talk about what just happened with Finn, but kind of picking up where they left off in their last conversation. And I knew nothing was going to happen after that because Lauren had plenty of time to come up with an excuse about where those cards came from while they were dealing with the Fen mess. I'm sure the whole car ride to the police station, she was thinking about what the heck she was going to say about those cards. And Michael asked her again, and she said something like it was the maids, or I don't know, she came up with some lame excuse. Obviously, nothing was going to be revealed at that time. It just ended with Michael, again, leaving the apartment, feeling despondent, and Lauren just sitting alone in the mess that she's created of her life. It is tragic. It is truly tragic. Now, Carmine is not happy about being left. He finds the note, and he's a little bit ticked off about it. So he has nothing better to do. Now his meal ticket is gone. He can't probably afford to stay in the hotel room by himself. So he goes back to Genoa City, and he shows up at work after disappearing on Billy for days. He called in sick and just said, Oh, I'm too sick. I won't be there for like three days. (laughs) While he went up on his sexcation. Sex vacation. Um, And... (laughs) Carmine is so distracted from his job, thinking about Lauren, that he's not paying 
attention at all to what he's doing, Victor, as in Victor Newman, shows up at the bar and <laughs> Carmine accidentally goes to pour Victor a drink and instead of hitting the glass, he pours liquor directly onto Victor, of all people's, shirt. <laughs> I, that had to have been like the most amazing scene of the week. It was actually completely mortifying. It's as if God walked up to the bar trying to get a drink after a long day of ruling the world and you spilled <laughs> liquor all over him. Can you imagine how, how horrified you would be? I, I, Victor actually took it very, very well, but I was expecting him just to be like, do you know who the hell I am? I'm Victor Newman. How dare you spare liquor on my on my shirt? Did you know I, I built my company from the ground up? <laughs> How dare you, you little peon. <laughs> I can see that Billy Boy has hired someone just as competent as him. <laughs> Billy Boy. Gosh, we have to create... I've said before, like, we need to start a drinking game. I don't drink, but if I did, we would need to do a drinking game where we take shots every time Victor says Billy Boy. <laughs> I love that. I want to go... I should, might have to go back and watch that again because it was really, really good. But that little uh, mishap with Victor was just the tip of the iceberg with Carmine's night. Um, things are, are not going very well from him for him. Um, Paul shows up at the bar and he sits down in front of Carmine and Paul has suspected for a couple of weeks now that something is going on with Lauren and Carmine and Paul starts asking Carmine questions about where he was over the weekend and Carmine's like, what's up with all the questions? And kind of it becomes clear that Paul's on to him and Paul confronts him, kind of straight up asks him, what's going on with you and Lauren Fenmore? And Carmine manages to dodge any, any, you know, he doesn't confess to anything, but Paul makes it subtly, maybe not so subtly, clear that if there's something going on between them, it needs to stop. Lauren's a friend and an ex-wife. I don't know if Carmine knows that, but he needs to back off. And Paul made himself, I think, clear. I think he made his point. But Carmine, I think, has an attraction to vice. So he's not going to back off. I think he wants other people to feel that attraction too like he wants to to rope them into the uh, the vice as well so carmine has a has a billy shows up okay and billy isn't happy about the fact that carmine has disappeared for a number of days but carmine has billy's number carmine um can sense i think that billy is a recovering gambling addict or that there's something more to Billy and the gambling. And so Carmine's constantly trying to get Billy to open up a, a, another a gambling game, just play for no reason. I mean, he's always making comments about let's play a hand of cards, clearly kind of being um, uh, just tempting, tempting Billy to, to give in to what, of course, his urge is. And Carmine even proposes this stupid game. Billy says... Why shouldn't I fire you right now? You just left me hanging, uh, going off for a couple of days. So give me a reason not to fire you. And Carmine comes up with this 
stupid idea that, okay, well, let's play a round of cards for it. If if I win, I get to keep my job. If you win, I'll work free for you for two weeks. D- what's the point even? It's something little and tiny just to rope Billy into the game. And Billy gives in and Carmine probably let Billy win. Just... Uh, because winning is the worst thing for him. Winning makes Billy feel good, makes him feel like it's okay, like it's not a problem if I'm winning. And that's where the trap is. I mean, anything can become an addiction, but that's where the trap is. You, you're winning, and then if you lose, you got to try to make up for it, make up for it so you can get back on top, and it's a never-ending uh, cycle. And Billy is really, he's he's falling for it. I mean, after the card game with Carmine, it just gave him a taste. Even, like, after Carmine kind of left, Billy's off in the corner with the deck of cards, like, shuffling them orgasmically and, like, touching them and feeling them and just having a, like, almost a, a sexual experience with these cards. Like, it's clearly something he has a taste for, he has a desire for. And so, Billy's off the wagon. It's... It's only going to escalate from here. And I feel like, yes, Billy's ultimately responsible for his own decisions, but Carmine is such a little devil. It's like he just finds people's weaknesses so he can lean on them. Summer and her friend have a brilliant idea that I think every kid in the history of ever has had. Let's get fake IDs and let's sneak into my dad's club, the underground. First of all, if you're going to get fake IDs, go to a club that isn't owned by your father. It's only going to end badly for you. But Summer realizes it's both Nick and Noah's night off, so she's going to try to sneak into the club. She manages to get past the bouncer, which is farther than Fen got, and she comes in. They don't really order drinks. They they first pretty much just make a beeline for the hot guys in the room, and Mason was just having a seat in the booth, and Summer and her friend just sit right next to him, like Mason's all of a sudden in a teenage blonde sandwich, and he seemed to be enjoying it a little bit. He didn't know how young they are, although they're very good at reminding that they're 18, but Summer's giggling and having fun, kind of hitting, macking on Mason a little bit, when Tyler shows up. He notices her there, and he busts her a little bit. He says, you know, I know how old you are, and now you're going to be one of the models for this Jabot's new fashion line, and you're going to be a spokesperson. You need to embody all of the qualities that Jabot promotes, so you really can't be sneaking into clubs. So Mason did a really, or I'm sorry, did I say Mason again? Tyler, it was Tyler. Um, but he did a really good job of, I think, talking to her without seeming overbearing, But he also noticed, as she was sitting next to Mason, that Mason would make a pretty good model. So Tyler gives uh, Mason his card and says, hey, why don't you come down to our office tomorrow and we'll give you kind of a, a test shot and we'll see how you work out. So kind of on the sideline, Noah, uh, who's supposed to be, he was supposed to be off work this evening, but he totally strikes out with a lady. They're getting all cozy in the booth and smoochy smooching and they're ready to take this back home. And 
<laughs> she says, let's go to your place. And Noah's like, yeah, I kind of live with my dad. <laughs> and she is not having it after that. She's like, no, thank you. I don't want to get involved with any guys who live at home, which is yeah, nobody wants to, you know, go with a guy who's living in his parents' house <laughs> at that age. And it just makes Noah realize even more that he's got to get out of there. And he was talking with Tyler about getting an apartment. And, and he offered to give Tyler some listings of some places he was looking at. And I think Tyler and Noah would make really good roommates. I mean, they both, I mean, Tyler probably has plenty of money. He's got an executive job, but he could use the company. I just think they have been chumming it up for the last couple of weeks. And they seem like they'd make good roommates. Maybe they could have a new loft or something. Remember the loft back that JT and Brittany and Raul and Mac, I think, shared? That was kind of cool. I, I wouldn't mind seeing a new loft. And I think Noah and, Ty Noah and Tyler have some things in common. The ladies, for instance. So I think that would be kind of neat. But so Noah comes back to the club after striking out. And he sees Summer there, his underage sister there. And I, I don't know, I really kind of enjoyed seeing Noah get stern with Summer. And I particularly enjoyed her saying, um, we don't have to tell Dad about this, do we? Just as Nick was walking up <laughs> behind her, and he was there to bring down the hammer. Everything, it seems, that Nick is built on, like, everything that Nick is seems predicated on the fact that he lost a teenage daughter to drinking. So this really... Uh, or to, you know, a drunk driving scenario. So this really hit home with him. Again, he assumes Summer is in the club because she's trying to drink, which, to be fair, she wasn't. But he really, really lays into her. Understandably, I'm totally on Nick's side with this. Summer needs to, just because she's 18 doesn't, she need, doesn't mean she doesn't need parenting. So he comes down on her pretty hard. And, and Summer has a really good way of talking her way out of things. I think she gets that from Phyllis. But this time, she just said to Nick, I'm out. I'm not going to live with you anymore, and so you can't control me. I'm going to go live with Mom. She's suddenly the fun parent. She's the one that won't punish her, that won't parent her. And Summer just wants to have her own life. She wants to be independent. She's got this modeling job now. And she shows up the next day for her test shots. And Mason shows up too. So it was actually kind of awkward. But they were doing, you know, screenshots, chem tests, to see if they had any on-screen camera chemistry. And what do you know... Well, first, actually, I have to say, I'm kind of glad to see something different from Mason. Like, Minor has done nothing with him. It's nice to actually see him doing something. And I'm trying really hard to forget that he's, uh, you know, that he's a weasel. <laughs> I didn't like everything that went down at Newman Enterprises. I didn't like him even considering uh, switching Sharon's medication. I'm glad that that didn't pan out. So I'm going to try to pretend that that never happened, and I'm going to try to get into Mason. So hopefully we'll see more of him. Now, as this photo shoot is going on, which I don't know, everybody's saying they see the chemistry between Summer and Mason. I don't know if I necessarily see chemistry between them, but I'm glad they both have jobs. But Kyle shows up during this chem test. And he had to deliver a folder or something for, for Jack. Um, he still works for the company, too. So he I, I sees 
summer in front of the camera. And I think maybe for the first time, he really saw her as a woman, as not just, uh, you know, Phyllis's little girl. I think he saw her as an independent person. And I, I don't know, I kind of think maybe he was checking her out a little bit, but it's so hard to tell because new Kyle just has this kind of stare and you don't know what's going on in his head. Like, I don't know, I think he needs to like say something soon. He needs some more lines or something because he, all he does is have these silent stares, <laughs> just these intense silent stares. And so I don't know what he's thinking. But um, later, Summer decides that she's going to have a sleepover at the Abbott Mansion and Jack appoints Kyle as chaperone. Who needs a chaperone at 18? I mean, I guess because Summer's been in trouble lately, maybe, but everybody's concerned about Summer's crush on Kyle. Why would Jack make Kyle the chaperone? I would think he'd kind of want to keep them apart. I don't know. But I mean, Summer's telling everyone that she's over Kyle, that that's so two weeks ago. But then as soon as she's alone with her friend, they're cooking up new ways to get Kyle to notice her. So it's clear that she's not over him. Now, this was weird. Summer and her friend are like hanging out in the living room and there's a knock on the door and Summer looks out and Fen is standing there creepily, almost like with his face and hands pressed up against the door, like, you know, with his eyebrows raising, like, hey, 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 what's going on in there? Like he's a peeping Tom or something. <laughs> the kid is dark and creepy and he comes in and he starts to accuse Summer. Like, okay, first of all, he found out that they were having this little sleepover because the Summer's friend Paste, f posted it on Face Place. So he's creeping on her Face Place to find out what she's doing. Uh, stalker, stalker, stalker alert. <sighs> that was creepy. And then he comes in and he's all, why am I the last one to know what's going on in your life? You know, aren't we friends anymore? And and who is your new fling? Who's the guy that you're all into now? And, and just feeling jilted, I guess, because he wants her, and she's not interested. Kyle shows up, and Finn assumes right away that, oh, is Kyle the one that you're having the, the, the crush on? I don't know why he would necessarily make that connection, maybe just looking at how Summer's looking at him, at Kyle. But it becomes very, very uncomfortable, clear that Finn is becoming increasingly desperate, and Kyle ends up having to throw him out. Just like, okay, kid, you gotta get out now. This is a little bit uh, creepy. But after Fen leaves, he goes to the coffee house and he's just brooding in the background room. Just dark eyes. Got his black eyes still. Summer didn't even ask about that. I mean, it, it's kind of crappy that he and Summer were supposed to be best friends. He was the good kid. She was the bad kid. She dragged him over to um, his bad side and then abandoned him by becoming good. And now didn't even ask about his black eye. Doesn't seem to want to reach out and help him. Summer is not a good friend. So I understand a little bit where he's coming from. And I feel empathy for Fen a little bit because um, he's sitting in the back room of Crimson Lights. Kevin comes in and asks you know, Fen, his nephew, what's up? And Fen confides to Kevin about some of the ways he's feeling and that he has this anger that he doesn't know what to do with, just that he feels anger. And that's a bad sign. 
this kid is becoming very dangerous and I'm worried about him. After the after he left um, the Abbott Mansion, Summer takes this as an opportunity to have alone time with Kyle. And she asks him, um, do you think I should be afraid of a fen? I, I don't think she even conceptualizes that she should. I think she's just coming up with reasons to talk with Kyle. That's how her mind works. That's all she wants. I think she should be concerned about Fen, but she's too focused on Kyle to even think about Fen. So as soon as Summer and Kyle have this moment alone together, she, you know, he's like, is this getting weird again? He's trying to deter her from getting weird. And she is saying to him, you know, I, I know we have a connection. I know you feel it, too. There's something between us. But I don't know. I, I wonder if, you know, is it the is the connection that Kyle feels with Summer or is it going to end up being with Phyllis? Chloe is in heat. (laughs) Last week she was drooling over Dylan, and this week during the photo shoot she was drooling over Mason. I guess she's just trying to compensate for the lack of hotness in her own relationship, and she's noticing guys all over the place. She's mad at Kevin. They have been having serious troubles. He he actually showed up at her office this week with a you know big old bouquet of flowers, which were really beautiful, by the way. Love the floral arrangements on the show. I'm always noticing them. There was a really nice one in the Abbott living room as well. Uh, but he shows up with uh, the, the, these flowers, and he wants to ask her out on a date. And she's resistant at first. Um, they don't have any money. They they. They want to put some spontaneity and fun into their relationship, but it's it is hard to do that when you don't have any money. So Chloe comes up with this idea to have uh, like a, a Thailand beach fantasy. <laughs> she throws a couple of pieces of fabric down on the floor and she has like this big bright beach ball, which to me does not a beach ball does not equal romantic uh Thai beach fantasy, but it's there anyway. And they're trying to imagine that they're on a beach somewhere, just trying to, you know, compensate for the fact that they can't really go on a vacation. And next thing you know, they're both into it and they're having sexy time all over the office. And they show back up at Crimson Lights and they're both clearly very excited, very overheated. They've just obviously had some hot sex and they're ready to go do it again. And next thing you know, there's a scene where Neil's apartment has been tossed. He walks in the door and everything is everywhere. Someone has gone through it and trashed everything. And my first reaction was, are there any American flag pins lying around? (laughs) Somebody look for an American flag pin. Because the last time an apartment got tossed, which was like a month ago, there was an American flag pin. (laughs) And that linked it to Congressman Wheeler. Did Congressman Wheeler do this? No, I'm just kidding. He's in jail and gone. But that's just funny that that was my first thought. So... Neil's house is trash. There's a detective, a female detective, that shows up and um, she kind of takes some questions from Neil. And then she shows up at the coffee house and accuses Chloe and Kevin or is questioning Chloe and Kevin. Now, first of all, the detective said that Chavez was the one that sent her. Why did Chavez not come himself? <laughs> uh. He needs 
needs to be involved in this because we need to work toward a Alex-Chloe combo. That's where we need to be headed, YNR. That is where the hotness is. But no, they sent this female detective and she starts questioning Kevin and Chloe about where they were and Chloe is kind of fed up, and she just tells the truth. She says, look, we're trying to put some spice in our marriage, um, uh, you know, so we, you know, nobody, of course, we don't have an alibi for when the apartment got tossed, uh, but, you know, this is where we were, and I'm telling you the truth. But after the detective leaves, Chloe has a moment of doubt with Kevin. She says, you know, yeah, we were together the whole night, except for when you left to go get whipped cream. <laughs> like kind of implying that maybe Kevin just went out and robbed a place to sort of like get himself excited is that is that where we are with this like does Kevin need to rob somebody or do something naughty in order to kind of get it up ew, ew I don't think that's it I really don't like the thing is Neil realizes that something that's missing, the main thing that's missing, is a flash drive. There was a flash drive in his drawer that contained a ton of secret and important and confidential information about Jabot. I don't know why he would keep that in a drawer in his house. It should have been in a safe if it was that if it was that important, he should have had it under lock and key, but the detective realized that there was, like, a very expensive watch sitting on the desk next to it, so it was clearly that someone was looking for something, not just trying to collect valuables, they were looking for something, and so it almost seems like a case of corporate theft, like it was almost someone who wanted information about Jabot, and I don't think that would have been Kevin or Chloe? I I think maybe that was just a coincidence, but I mean, who could it have been? Like, my thought is, does it is it connected to Gus in some way? We know he had some kind of mob connections, but if that was it, he would have trashed Leslie's house. So I think there must be something more going on. There must be another storyline going to come up from the ground here, because I don't see how it connects to anybody who's already on the scene. I mean, you have to kind of ask yourself, okay, well, who stands to gain from getting that information from Jabot? At the very beginning of the week, Tyler had a love scene with that model girl. Uh, just he was have, wanting to have random sex to kind of make his problems go away. And I'm going to be honest, I thought that love scene was pretty hot. Tyler is really starting to grow on me, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I necessarily want him with Lily, just because of the affair bothers me. But I want him with someone. I think he's got major hot potential, and he's he's really up. Um, we've seen him enough to where now I'm kind of getting it. Like, I'm looking in his eyes, and I'm like, yeah, you know, I understand him a little more. <laughs> He's not just a, a hunk. He's got a little something behind the eyes, too. So I like him. And, oh, this week, Neil observes a conversation between Lily and Tyler. Lily trying to comfort Tyler with everything that's going on with his dad in the hospital and the heart attack and maybe even dying. And, you know, they're having a conversation where she's trying to help him. And Neil is off in the background. He kind of sees it and just gets a vibe 
And he confronts Lily. He confronted her last week, too, but he confronts her again about what's going on between them. And she insists that she's just trying to help him, but he actually gave her a pretty good piece of advice, saying, you know, Tyler is drowning right now. He's going down. And if you reach out to help him, you might just find out that he's going to pull you down with him. And that is certainly a possibility. But, you know, I do think that Tyler is trying to pull himself up now. He went into his father's uh, uh, hotel room, hospital room, and he tried to have a frank conversation with his dad. And he was very honest about how he felt and uh, that he felt cheated. And um, the dad kind of opened up about how he felt. And they both ultimately decided to try to repair their relationship, just to try. And so now, though, just as Tyler is actually starting to make amends with his father, Leslie bursts in angry as hell. Leslie straight up read all of those letters that was in Gus's private personal property box. And I cannot blame him for being upset with her. It's a total violation of trust. Whatever was in that box was none of her business. Now, I wanted to know, too. I'm not going to lie. I wanted to know it was in the box as a viewer. But I never would have, if it was me, I never would have looked in the box. If you have questions, you need to ask him. But she read them all, realized that they were love letters, and obviously they meant something to him because he kept them, and she confronts him about it. But, like, she was not letting him talk. It was just all venom. I mean, the guy just had a heart attack, and she's yelling at him in the hospital room, getting him all riled up, um, asking about who Rose is, and he, you know, she actually even said, like, were you with her that night? That's where you were. You know, she kind of deduced that um, the only reason her mother had the affair with Congressman Wheeler was because Gus was stepping out on her having an affair with this Rose. I don't know. I don't know. Like, that's not necessarily even the truth. It seems like because Leslie's mother is dead, like, she's more sainted. And because they had had a bad experience with Gus, it automatically taints him to this day. Even though he didn't end up, you know, he didn't wasn't the one that murdered her. But Leslie insists that Gus was with Rose the night that uh, her mother had died, and um, Gus agreed. He said, yes, I was with Rose because she needed me, um, but he says, I was never unfaithful to your mother, and he was very, very um, aggressive in saying that. I was never unfaithful to your mother, so clearly he loved the mother, but I don't know, maybe there was an, like a, an emotional affair or something, but uh, we, the point is we don't know because Leslie won't even let him talk. Why not just let him explain what happened? She's just blaming, blaming, blaming. All she does is blame him for, you know, not being there. Uh, when, Frankly, if Gus had been at the house, too, the night the mother was murdered, he could have been murdered, too. So, I don't know. If, if Leslie's not blaming him for one thing, she's blaming him for another. And Tyler, actually, was the one that tried to calm Leslie down. He takes her out into the waiting room and says, you know, why don't we just... Open your mind. You're the one that tried to tell me to do that, and now I want to tell you. And it is odd, you know, because the roles have kind of switched. Like, all of a sudden, Leslie's calling him Gus, and Tyler's calling him Dad. Did you notice that? It was totally the opposite a week or two ago. But, I mean, at the end of the day, neither one of these kids know him at all. They have created their own 
narrative about who he is. They created one 12 years ago when they assumed he killed their mother because he was uh, not nice to them, and they're creating their own narrative about him still today. So I, I don't know what the truth is. I don't know if the Rose thing is going to be connected to whatever's going on at Neil's apartment. I have no clue. Um, do you do you guys have any theory about who Rose is? Is she still alive? The only thing I can think is maybe Rose is their Leslie and Tyler's real mother? Catherine comes out of brain surgery this week, and the brain tumor is benign. So that's good news. I don't know why we had to go all through this, all of this. I wish we wouldn't. I'm not sure. Maybe all of this health scare with Catherine was just to put Kane in control of Chancellor, but nobody else works there besides Jill, so there's not a heck of a lot of drama that's going to happen there. I don't love this storyline, but I'm, of course, glad that Catherine came out of it okay. Um... So she's unconscious in the hospital, and her family is all gathered around waiting for her to wake up. And Devon showed up this week, finally. It was nice to see him have his scenes with his grandmother. Um, now, meanwhile, out in the waiting room, Jill finds out that Catherine appointed Kane as the head of Chancellor. Like, Catherine has decided to step down as CEO, and she wants Kane to take over. And Jill found a way to make that all about herself. She immediately was offended that she was offended by, by both of them. She felt betrayed by both of them, that Catherine wouldn't choose her to be the CEO and that Kane would accept and would not defer to her. Now, yes, Jill, I can understand where she's coming from. Like, Jill is more qualified, but she needs to pick her battles. This was not the way to go about it. Jill just, she doesn't know how to make her point without brute force. Um, and, and she has inappropriate timing because things for Catherine are looking really grim and all Jill's thinking about is the business. And ultimately... When Catherine does wake up, she kind of ends up kind of coming out of it while she's sparring with Jill. Like Catherine's first words coming out of the sleep from the surgery are, are sparring with Jill. And I thought that was very appropriate. But, you know, Jill doesn't want to accept that this is happening and she's prepared to fight about it. Catherine is clear headed. She seems very rational and she tells Jill that she wants to name Kane as the successor. I mean, like, it is kind of crappy just because they've had so much history and Jill is way more experienced and way more appropriate of a choice. But gosh darn it, Jill was flipping out loud in the hospital room. I can't imagine anything more appropriate. Like, she's just not taking it like lightly. And I'm used to seeing the feud between Jill and Catherine, which I love. It's classic. But now I think it's maybe going to develop into a feud between Jill and Kane. There's a lot of tension going on between them now. And Jill... It's so eager to prove herself to Catherine, like as if that will validate her own opinion of herself, that Jill, oh gosh, she goes out, like while Catherine's in the hospital, everybody's in the hospital, like leaning over Catherine, and Jill goes out to close a business deal 
just to prove herself. Like, see, I did this without you guys. I did this without your approval. And see how good I am? You know, just it was kind of pathetic. She just wants to be recognized. And I understand that. But she just, she's, she's so forceful about it. Now, there's nothing she's going to be able to do to change this. Kane goes out into the waiting room. He's talking to Neil and Lily. And Lily, I think, is not necessarily happy about him taking this job and leaving Jabot. Uh, but he does. He decides to resign from Jabot. He tells Neil. Um, <laughs> Neil, Neil actually warned him about Hurricane Jill. Just beware of Hurricane Jill. I think, I think he called it like, there's going to be a category four Hurricane Jill. Like It, it is. It's exactly true. I, I feel glad for Kane on the one hand that he got this promotion. He's going to be a CEO. But, I don't know, it could also be a really bad, bad move. I mean, for one thing, it's going to put him at odds with the only woman he's really ever known in his mo- as his mother. And for another thing, it's going to leave Lily and Tyler alone, way more, unchecked. <sighs> so, Catherine comes home from her surgery, and there is a welcome home slash anniversary party. All of her friends, well, most of her friends and family are there. Esther, Jill, Murphy, and Chloe and Kevin. Um, <sighs> Chloe and Kevin should be ashamed of themselves. I don't know how they can show their face around there acting like their family when they stole from her. I, I can't get around that. You stole from Catherine. She would have given you anything and you stole from her so the fact that they were even there participating and celebrating I just wanted to throw up all over them I hate that they did that it's it's definitely colored my opinion but it was nice to see Murphy (laughs) oh I love that old guy and it was good to have some one-on-one time with them together and he's just saying you know I love you and I, I don't know what I'd do if anything happened to you and I love him. I love that man. <laughs> I just do. He gives me a good grandpa vibe. <laughs> um, now, of course, Jill and Kane were there as well, and it's more tension between those two. And even as Jill uh, or as as Kane was leaving the house, he and Jill did have a moment where he said, "You know, this is what's happening. This is where we are." And I understand how you feel, but I hope that you will choose to work with me not against me. And I don't, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm worried about what that's going to do to their relationship. I, I mean, and Angela and Catherine's relationship. I want them to, you know, I enjoy the feud, but I want to know that there's an underlying love there. And they actually did have a heart-to-heart that was much needed. Um, Jill just sat down with Catherine in the living room, and um, Jill explained where she was coming from. And Catherine said, you know, the reason why I'm doing this is because I feel like I need someone who thinks like me to take that position over, and that's Kane. You, Jill, are, um, you know, you're different from me. You know, you're, you have completely different ideas, and, and I'm trying to secure my legacy is what it, it boiled down to. And I can understand why Jill felt slighted. And I know that she's going to fight her every step of the way. Now, there was this scene, the very last scenes of Catherine um, of the week were Catherine going upstairs into her bedroom for the night and Jill watching her walk up the stairs and just asked her, you know, do you need, do you need some help? Like, after everything that we're disagreeing on, you know, do you need some help? I'm still here for you as someone who thought 
you know, the, the, I, I thought you were my mother for years. I'm still here to help you. And Catherine just says, no, I think I can, I can manage it on my own. You know, Catherine's very independent too. But there's just something about that scene, oh, maybe it was me, with Catherine walking up the stairs that felt sad. It felt final or something. And, um, I, I know I, I know I talked about this a little bit last week that um Jean Cooper is back in the I mean she's back in the hospital. She was in the hospital last week or the week before and then she did good. She got out and now she's back in and I don't know I don't know what her disease is. I don't I don't know what the medical condition is. Um but just I've been kind of keeping up on reports a little bit about what her son is, you know, putting out to the world. I think he's not disclosing exactly what this this situation is, but he, he does seem to be saying that it is very serious. Um, I think it's, I think it's not looking good for our girl. And, you know, obviously that makes us sad because we love, you know, the show, but Gene um, Cooper, Cooper is much more than an actress. I mean, she's a mother and um, she's a friend. And I mean, she has a whole life outside of what happens um, on this show. I mean, she definitely has affected us in many ways as viewers. Um, I've, as long as I've been watching that show, she's certainly on, has been on. And I, I, I really, I don't know. I hope that she pulls through. Um, and if she doesn't, I just hope that she, um, is not in pain and is, uh, peaceful. I think that's the most that you can hope for someone, but let's still keep, you know, really good, uh, thoughts in our mind and, um, let's hope that we see her again. Avery says to Nick, tell me how I can convince you that I love you and that I want to be with you. And unfortunately, I think that although that's true, you still have feelings for Dylan. And Nick knows it. Everybody knows it. And it culminated in this very heartbreaking scene where they both realize that it's not going to work. Their engagement is going to have to be called off indefinitely. She takes off the ring and gives it back to him. I mean, he doesn't trust her, um, her perception of what her feelings are. And she's in denial. I really do think that she's in denial. I don't think there's any question that she loves Nick. It's just that she loves two men. Um, and I feel really bad for everyone involved, really. I, th I think that Nick and Avery just rushed the relationship, and it certainly wouldn't be the first or the last relationship to suffer for putting pressure on it, and uh, it is too bad. I don't, I'm, they're not necessarily my favorite couple, but I just really did feel bad for everyone um, in the situation after this cheerful incident. Nick goes to Phyllis to tell her what happened with Summer at the club and, of course, to confront her about Summer moving out and Phyllis not telling him about it. And 
It was like two warring factions. Phyllis and Nick were butting heads hardcore. And I actually thought that Jack did a really good job of stepping out of the situation. You know, he wants to support Phyllis, but he's also uh, not wanting to get involved in matters that have to do with their daughter. So Jack kind of stepped back and not did not butt in. But as soon as he left, the mud slinging between Phyllis and Nick began. Nick is mad that she didn't tell uh, him that Summer was moving out and in with her. And I think that she should have. I do think that it warranted a kind word from Phyllis. Whether, you know, it doesn't matter what's going on with Nick and Avery or what your feelings are. You still have a child together and it's courteous to tell him if you've invited her to stay. It's just, it, it was very rude, I felt. Um, but, you know, Phyllis does have a, a right to her anger. Um, she, you know, feels mad at him for moving Avery in so quickly. And um, Summer, I think, just got her wound up about that. But Nick had to tell her that the engagement with Avery is off. And if he was expecting any level of sympathy, ooh, he did not get it. Phyllis got real childish yet again real quick like oh what am I supposed to shed a tear for you oh oh so sorry that your relationship with my sister didn't work out <laughs> she you know she as she said you know you're just now it sounds like you're here because you want to take it out on me you know you you've broken up with Avery things didn't work out as I knew it wouldn't and now you want to take it out on me and she is right about that he was angry he went there probably he should have given himself a day to rest over what just happened. But I do think he was trying to take it out on her. But Phyllis's immaturity is shining for me right now. I don't know if I've changed or if she's changed or what, but it is really getting on my nerves. Um, Nick tries to tell her about what happened at the club. The summer was sneaking into the club and Phyllis was on Summer's side right away. I think if for no other reason, just so that she wasn't on Nick's side. Summer was in the wrong. Their child needs to have a talking to, and Phyllis immediately just jumped to um, to Summer's defense, you know, insisting that she's an adult, um, not hardly, she's barely an adult, and that doesn't mean that she's not your daughter, that doesn't mean that you don't still need to talk with her. Um, <laughs> it's like Nick is the only one who's trying to be a parent. You never stop being a parent, even if your child is an adult. But Phyllis is the easier parent. She's the easier one to deal with. Nick is stern. You know, he he does have a tendency to try to control. And she made that point, and it is true. But he's, I, I think, genuinely trying to look out for his daughter. And Phyllis is just like letting her run willy-nilly. And so, I mean, I don't know, ultimately, Phyllis, you think Summer is such a little angel, you deal with her. You be the parent. You, I mean, you know, when first sign that things are going to go wrong, she's going to come whining back to Nick. So, ugh, Phyllis just trusts Summer. That's the problem. Nick knows that Summer is headed down a dangerous path. He is really, really against her being anywhere near Kyle. He has made it clear to Phyllis. He's made it clear to Jack. He was kind of insulting to Jack about, you know, Kyle being a playboy just like you when you were young, Jack. And I, I don't know. I'm not sure why it is that Nick doesn't like Kyle. Um, he said, yeah, I'm not going to be okay with Summer and Kyle dating no matter what age they are. So just he has a chip on his shoulder about it. And I'm not entirely sure where that... Uh, is coming from, but he's he's got his point, and he's going to be a sticking point in that relationship forever if it ever ends up happening. Um, I just am hoping that all of this crap that's going on is not going to put 
a strain on Jack and Phyllis's relationship because Phyllis and Jack go to the underground to have a drink. Well, Jack had a club soda. Phyllis had a drink. And Phyllis, I guess, was talking to Noah, and she was questioning him a little bit about what was going on with Avery and Nick. And then uh, Jack turned around and questioned her about why she cares so much about what's going on between Avery and Nick. And she, of course, said, you know, that I'm just, I have children with him, whatever. She made up some excuse. She denies that she wants Nick back. <sighs> What do you guys think? I mean, maybe Phyllis doesn't want Nick and she just doesn't want Avery to have him and she's glad and she feels, um, uh, you know, uh, glad, I don't know, she feels um, glad that it didn't work out between them, but I don't know. I just wonder if she's still carrying a torch for Nick and that's why she got so hostile with him. What do you guys think? Is Phyllis really over Nick? Good old Dylan comes to Chelsea this week with a million questions and a million ideas about his baby that's on the way. He's excited about being a dad, and she snaps at him. Right away, she's like, stop acting like you're my husband. (laughs) I knew that she was going to get tired of him hovering over her sooner or later, and it happened sooner. But I felt bad for Dylan because she was kind of mean. She apologized for it later, but... She was, you know, she's got her own internal struggle that's going on right now. And I think what she's really mad at is herself, that she's having to lie or that she's chosen to lie. But poor Dylan's caught in the crosshairs of all this. This baby is all that he has. He's lost the woman he loves. Uh, He lost a a child with her previously. He um, really doesn't have any friends. He lost his father. He lost his job. He doesn't have a lot right now. He's just a lonely man sitting in a hotel room designing a baby crib. That was so sweet. He's drawn in his notebook, drawn a little baby crib. He's probably thinking about making a baby crib. That's just adorable. I feel bad for him. He's there alone thinking about his child in his hotel room when Avery shows up after a fight with Nick and she kind of asked him to leave town. She was kind of like, what are you sticking around here for? Um, And he's like, I'm here for my child. I'm not going anywhere. And it's really unfair of you to try to get me to leave. And it really was. She, I think, felt very embarrassed for being so selfish. She just wants Dylan out of her life so that she can move on with Nick. I think she doesn't want to face the fact that she still loves him. She doesn't want to have to see him. She doesn't want to have to think about it. She wants Dylan to go away and go back kind of to where she came from. I think she was happier before he came back, this drudged up, not that she doesn't care about him, but it's drudged up all of these feelings for her, um, or for, for him. And Dylan guesses all of that right away. He knows why she's there. He guesses that Nick knows that she still has feelings for Dylan. Otherwise, they would still be happy. They would still be together. And she doesn't want to admit anything. She just apologizes and quickly leaves. And she shows up at the coffee house where she meets Adam. She actually, Adam's sitting there just nursing a cup of coffee, feeling sad for himself, and she asks to take a seat next to him, and I don't know, it was weird. What'd you guys think about that little interaction between Avery and Adam? That was a little unusual. Uh, Adam is insisting that love sucks, and Avery disagrees. They sort of talk in, in generalities, but I thought it was, I don't know, I wonder if they could be friends someday. I don't know, nobody's ever friends. There's always more, but it could be interesting if uh, Adam and Avery became friends at some point. Now, 
Dylan runs into Avery at the coffee house after Adam leaves, and he notices that there's no ring on her finger. So he yeah, just guesses right away that they've broken up and they start to have a conversation. He's very frank about how he feels about her, that he wants to get back together with her. And it's obvious that it's a, it's a sad situation for everybody. And like the sad music is playing over the background. They want something more than this. I, I, it's always there. That song is always there. And it's always that line. They want something more than this. It's very true. Dylan is getting ready to leave town. He's got to take care of some business. And he asks Avery to come with him. Let's just get out of here. Come on up to the cottage. This is a cottage where they've shared many, many memories. And he just says, you know where I'll be. Show up if you want to. And um, she doesn't. Uh, He calls her and asks her if she's going to come. She's not going to come. And instead, Dylan's just up there alone, remembering the time she told him, I guess there, that she had lost the baby. And he's thinking about all the things that he's lost. And meanwhile, she's writing a love letter to Nick. She wants Nick back. She wants that part of her life back. Everybody wants something they can't have. Everybody wants something more than this. And I'm afraid nobody's going to get it. Last week, Adam was very rude to Sharon, treating her like she was a cheap trick. And this week, she's not taking it from him. (laughs) She calls it out. And he issues this non-apology in true Victor Newman Jr. form. He apologizes without saying that he's sorry. And they discuss the arrangement that they have. It's the arrangement, which is also known as sex. They're having a sexual relationship, and it's not a romantic relationship. And Adam just wants to get that clear. But I'm sorry, Adam. Having a sexual arrangement with Sharon doesn't mean that you get to treat her like crap. And I liked that she, first of all, I would have probably just walked out. I would have been like, I am not into this. Yes, you're very sexy and I enjoy our hot sex. But if you are going to even, with a hint, treat me like a whore, I am out. You can have sex with yourself if you want. But she knows him. You know, she's like, in a, in, a, in the way that Nikki is with Victor, I think Sharon is with Adam. Um, she breaks down his walls. She is not going to give up. She calls him out. She gets him to admit uh, that really what he's doing is trying to avoid the pain of what's going on with Chelsea by shutting himself down. Um, just feeling nothing, and then he'll never have to open up. And he agreed. You know, he realized that that is, that is exactly what he's doing. He says to her, I'm empty, Sharon. I am drained. I've, I've given everything that I can give. And I, I loved that scene when he just explained where he was. And you can see it in his face. He is kind of a shell of a man walking around. And so he tells her, look, you can just accept this relationship for what it is, or we can stop right now, and she decides to go along with it, but he, Adam is drinking too much for one thing, he is every single scene, got himself a drink in his hand, exactly like his father does, and he needs to cut it out, he needs to get his head clear, that is not going to help, okay, alcohol never solves anybody's problems, so you just need to get over that right now, you need to open yourself up and allow Sharon to be there for you. That's what I want. Except at the same time, I hate to say it, 
But Sharon needs to not be involved with him right now. I don't like his attitude. I think she is still recovering from her own hurt. Adam, you're not the only one who hurts. <laughs> Sharon has her own pain, too. And she's trying to recover from all of that. And I feel like she wants more from Adam than he's able to give right now. And she's just going to end up getting hurt. And I don't want to see that for her. She is out job hunting, which is good. She's interviewing and, you know, she she needs that. She needs something else to focus on. She's out uh, at on the boulevard in this interview and Victor sees her and right away he starts degrading her. You know, uh, you can't possibly think anybody's going to hire you after everything that you've done to my company. I'm Victor Newman. <laughs> Acting like she has nothing to offer as if she's worthless. And Sharon has made some mistakes. And I'm not saying that Victor doesn't have a reason to be upset with her, although he is the one that got that ball rolling. He did not help her mental situation. It was the relationship with Victor that was the beginning of the end of Sharon's mental state. Uh, but, you know, I understand what the situation is between them, but he didn't have to treat her like crap. Um, he didn't have to act like she uh, was just worthless. But she did a good job of handling him, even... Like, I appreciate that, that she reached out to him. She even kind of said, you know, I'm sorry for our marriage. We used to be close. Then we got married, and I wish we wouldn't have done that. Is there any way that we can repair our relationship? And Victor, you know, again, classic answering without answering or apologizing without apologizing. They kind of leave it in a neutral area. But he he does tell her to stay away from Adam. I don't know if he just thinks that she's a bad influence or what I'm not or maybe Sharon gives Adam a strength that Victor doesn't want Adam to have um but he tells her to stay away and it's it's not going to happen <laughs> Sharon and Adam are kind of all that each other has right now and they're just like exchanging sexy texts back and forth um she's like it's a cold night why don't we heat it up and then adam texts back the hotter the better <laughs> which actually made me a little nauseous sexy texting just makes me not gross just get it on you don't need to have a conversation about it <laughs> just do it so she shows up at Newman Enterprises, and she's wearing this coat that's all belted up. And I knew as soon as she showed up at, at the office, I was like, I bet she is not wearing much underneath that coat. And sure enough, <laughs> Adam closes the door, turns around, and she drops that coat to reveal herself in all her naked glory. <laughs> and Adam was just, Rawr! he pounced on it. I, I just, I have to say, Sharon Case has an awesome body. She's all tan and all perfect with her back. No back fat at all. <laughs> How nice would that be just for a day to not have back fat? <laughs> I mean, she looks good even from the back. Um, so anyway, it was very sexy. They did it right there on the couch. I hope the door was locked because Victor was lurking. He stops by after it was finished. Um, Sharon, like Sharon opens up the door to leave and Victor's standing right there. They pro probably both Adam and Sharon had that just sexed look on their face that Victor picked up on. I mean, uh, you can imagine he probably walked in the office like, smells like sex in here. <laughs> and not my sex. <laughs> No one but no one but me should be having sex in my office. <laughs> he knew. 
<laughs> and he again, he warned Adam to stay away from Sharon. Like, all of a sudden, Adam's the good one and Sharon's the bad one. Like, two years ago, it was just the opposite. It was Victor warning Sharon to stay away from Adam. It all just depends on what side of Victor you're on. Victoria and Adam are not friends. They are not playing nicely in the sandbox. And Victoria is not afraid to take it personally. She's not afraid to take it there. She starts rubbing it in with Adam that she knows about Chelsea, that she's that Chelsea's pregnant and that Adam's not the father. I don't think she was trying to be mean, but I think she was trying to make it known that she knew what was going on. The classy thing to do would be to not mention it, considering it's none of your business. But no, she has to tell Adam that she knows about everything and he's like, yeah, bad news travels fast, I guess. I mean, that's the last thing you want people to know. Your wife has a baby with somebody else. You don't want to talk about that. And Victoria was being, she even kind of said something that was a little bit suspicious. She said, you know, you'd be surprised about how important I could be to your future. She says this to Adam. And that's when I kind of realized fully, like, Victoria is the only one who knows the full story about what's going on with Adam and Chelsea. She knows because she overheard Chelsea saying that Adam's the father of her baby. So she knows Adam's a father and she knows that Chelsea's trying to pass it off onto Dylan. So Victoria is 100% aware of what Chelsea is doing. And so I guess actually no, Chloe knows it too, but Chloe's going to keep her secret. Victoria is the one to keep an eye on. I don't know. If she's going to end up telling Adam, I don't know if she's going to be the one. I don't know if she's going to somehow use it to get some leverage. Victoria's got a lot going on right now. While she's at the office, she gets some text message from JT saying that he needs her to take Reed. So I guess Reed is going to be coming to stay with Victoria. I don't know what the problem is there. Wouldn't it be cool if JT came back? Isn't she married to him? Isn't that her husband in real life? Isn't the actress who plays Victoria married to the actor who played JT? That'd be cool. Thad Luckinbill, I believe. His name would be cool if he came back even for a little bit. But I don't know. I don't know. Billy and Victoria seem to be growing further and further apart. Billy has got gambling on the mind. He's playing with Johnny this week, and he brings him a gift of a couple of, like, foam baby dice, like, or giant foamy dice for the kid to play with, and he's telling Johnny that he's a natural. But clearly, this, Billy has gambling on the mind. Victoria is, like, being shot up with fertility drugs, so her emotions are probably all over the place. She's dealing with this situation at work. She's dealing with um, Johnny at home. If Reed shows up, that's just going to put more strain on their marriage. How are Billy and Victoria going to raise all of these kids, work, and keep up with all of Billy's gambling debts, which are sure to be in the future? Okay, my podcast friends, that is going to do it for me for this week. I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. So if you feel so inclined, you can call into my voicemail and you can leave me a message to let me know all of your thoughts and feelings about this week's show. The telephone number is area code 309 588 
four, five, six, nine, and it's within the U.S., um, so that's country code one if you're abroad. Um, you can also go to my blog and leave a comment there. The web address is yrchatblog.blogspot.com. You can also see the video of this week's podcast, too. I record it in video as I'm recording the podcast. So if you want to see that, um, you can do that on the website. Or you can just send me an email if you'd like to. That email address is yrchat at live.com. However works for you, whatever method works for you, please don't be shy. You're more than welcome to feedback and let me know what you're thinking about the show. I always love hearing from you. Um, gosh, what else? I guess that's it. I'm going to get going. I love you guys and I'll see you next week. Okay. Bye.